This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Katie Bulls and Isabel Hardman. Oliver Dowden and Angela Rayner clashed in the Commons today at PMQs. Isabel, can you tell us what happened? Well, Oliver Dowden has been preparing for Prime Minister's questions for about 20 years, and uh, today he got his understudy moment. Uh, as Deputy Prime Minister, he uh, has prepared four Conservative leaders, uh, Michael Howard, David Cameron, Theresa May and Rishi Sunak. So he gave, it was a bit like watching a sort of a training course on how to do politics with a textbook demonstration of how to do PMQs. You know, you had a joke about his opponents, a little bit of a welcome for Angela Rayner, a mention of Labour-run Wales, a mention of Rayner's support for, for Jeremy Corbyn, uh, a nod uh, to his backstory as a comprehensive schooled boy, as he described himself. And the session, it went quite smoothly, both for him and for Angela Rayner. He described Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer as being the uh, the Phil and Holly of British politics, um, a nice... Nice zeitgeist joke there. And uh, Angela Rayner talked about the Tories uh, not providing a minimum service level after Oliver Dowden uh, made the obligatory reference to the Labour Party uh, refusing to back the Conservative government's uh, minimum service levels for strike, uh, for striking workers. So it ticked all the boxes. Did we learn anything? No. Were we expecting to learn anything from DPMQs? Probably not. But uh, I think the real question that both parties are asking and that was a sort of overarching theme of this session is, are voters going to think, yes, actually crime has fallen and we've got record levels of employment, as Oliver Dowden uh, said today as part of his defence of the Tory record? Or are they, as Angela Rayner tried to depict, worried about whether the wages they are getting in these jobs uh, are going to cover their household bills and whether their neighbourhoods actually feel safer? Katie, Keir Starmer gave an interview to The Times this morning in which he said that if he were Prime Minister, he would allow more building on the Greenbelt. He said Labour would be with the builders, not the blockers. John Oxley has written for Coffeehouse today saying that the pledge has trapped the Tories. Um, What did you make of it? So Labour have been for a few weeks now trying to plant this message of uh, the fact they want to build homes and attacking the Tories for what we've seen it at. Prime Minister's questions, we've seen it in in terms of interviews, but I think today's interview goes further, confirms this idea of more power to build on Greenbelt land. And and of course, the Tories are traditionally seen as the party of home ownership. So I think it's another sign of Labour trying to get onto their turf. I think what I found most interesting since Keir Starmer's words have dropped and he's also been doing a broadcast media round where he said similar things is um, that for example at lunchtime I was just on a political panel and Sarah Champion was on the panel and she was raising concerns with this policy both Greenbelt but also um, talking about you know she was very on the edge about whether um, this Labour MP was very on the edge about whether mandatory housing targets were a good or a bad thing it was a bit like well 
I probably support them in theory, but depends on the details. And you get a little bit of a sense. And John McDonald's also seen red over the green belt policy. Normally, the leaders office quite enjoy it when John McDonald takes issue with their policies because they can use it as further example that they're putting left to the side. But I think it's different on a housing policy because we've seen with the Tories, um, Boris Johnson promised the most radical shake up of planning reform and then had to massively scale it back, um, even though he had a majority of 80. So as much as you might want to say, oh, John McDonald's, you know, of the past... What type of majority are Labour going to get if they, if they win a majority? Is it going to be huge? Obviously, the local election results point um, have led some to think that they could fall short of that, have to, might have to go into bed with the Liberal Democrats. But if they do have a small majority, is there going to be the discipline there? I think the fact that this these comments, you know, just a few hours later, already having some kickback from Labour MPs does just point to how nimbyism as you might want to call it but um concerns over planning which is such a tricky issue you know in terms of people and their constituents um planning developments it isn't exclusive to the tory party and therefore i think Keir Starmer, you can see where the message is coming from i think it will appeal to lots of voters who are really struggling in terms of getting on the property ladder and also council homes will be a big part of this as well in terms of what a labor government would do but <laughs> how realistic is i think it'll be hard work um if labor does take power I mean, I, I also I think it's fascinating. Katie highlights Sarah Champion, who is not an MP who is afraid of making controversial arguments. I mean, she, she's got into a lot of hot water over other things that have been very uncomfortable for her party to to hear. Um, and I really respect her for that, actually, because there's a lot of MPs who, who, who aren't brave enough to argue their corner. But Sarah Champion and lots of other MPs are very afraid of voter reaction to something that is so widely misunderstood that it would be beneficial if politicians actually tried to have an argument on this. So all coffee house shops listeners know that the Greenbelt is not Hampstead Heath. I mean, I was I was listening to Joan Bakewell on the radio this morning and she was trying to suggest that the, the, the Greenbelt and Hampstead Heath are synonymous when they really aren't. And neither is the, the Lake District. is about 50%. Yeah, I mean, the Ladies' Pond is under regular threat from the M25. A um, big tar block in the middle of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, um, you know, the, uh, there is this amazing cultural stubbornness about what the green belt is and I think it's partly because and I could go down a real rabbit hole here so I'm going to try and stay concise we don't really understand what our wild countryside looks like anymore and we think that regimented heavily sprayed monoculture farmed fields intensive agriculture constitutes the countryside whereas actually a really wild place is scrubland um, and people don't like scrubland so they think that's brownfield. But actually a lot of the green belt that we have around towns and cities is intensive agriculture. And, you know, I, I live in, I suppose, on the edge of what might be termed Edinburgh's green belt and quite a lot of that has crop sprayers going over it um, as opposed to, and in fact, I see the farmers bring hives of bees in in the spring because there aren't any bees around. That's how unwild... Um, that particular space is and MPs are very unwilling to have that argument with people because people just don't want to look at what these green spaces are they're not accessible for people in the way that Hampstead Heath was and indeed the one of the original campaigners for the green belt Octavia Hill who also campaigned to safeguard large parts of Hampstead Heath wanted green spaces for people particularly those who are growing up in poverty to be able to to relax and regenerate. And I don't know anyone 
who goes to an oilseed rape field to regenerate. Uh, and so it's, you know, this is the sort of fundamental dishonesty of this Green Belt argument uh, that lots of MPs are really frightened of, even Sarah Champion, who's got into trouble for talking about grooming gangs, because their voters get very emotional about it and don't want to, don't want to hear the reality. In case you're finding Liz Truss is in Taiwan this week, China has said that it's a dangerous political stunt. What is the former Prime Minister up to? I mean, I don't think even Liz Truss was expecting China to praise her trip. Um, It was clearly going to be criticised, and that's actually the response that China Hawk would want. China has accused Liz Truss of performing a dangerous political stunt. I think what's interesting is quite a few Tory MPs think this is a political stunt. I'm not sure they think it's dangerous in the sense that Liz Truss has not gone there in an official role. So when Nancy Pelosi went to America, she she actually did have a former role. Um, whereas this, is, this isn't a repeat of that. And it it means that I think it's a bit harder to depict this as Liz Truss saying something, you know, on behalf of the government, particularly because lots of the government don't want her to be saying anything at all on behalf of them. Um, So what is the point of this trip, I think, is probably the question to ask. Um, In terms of Liz Truss's post-prime ministerial career, lots of people will say she shouldn't have one because she was prime minister for for such a short time time but I think if she is going to pick areas to focus in on I think there was a more convincing case on foreign affairs where she was foreign secretary for longer than she was prime minister than some of the other areas she might delve into though I think we will hear more on growth I'm sure potentially in the form of a think tank in the future Um, but I think actually amongst colleagues foreign policy in China is something she's been fairly consistent on and there are other MPs who also want Rishi to harden his position but not all the China hawks are with Liz Truss I think um Definitely something this is, if you think back to James Cleverley's speech a few weeks ago, and James Cleverley, of course, was Liz Truss's foreign secretary, as well as uh, Rishi Sunak. So he's been doing a lot of shape-shifting in terms of the um, the positions. But he said, you know, this foreign policy is not going to be about sound bites, And that did feel like it was a rebuke of Liz Truss. So if you speak to some of the Tory MPs who worry that perhaps under Rishi Sunak the, uh, there's a softening of the relationship, which number 10 would kick back on, et cetera, et cetera, they will say that actually the bigger focus will be things like the procurement bill and amendments to that rather than um, going on these you know, tools uh, and, and making noise that way. So I, I, I don't think it's representative of all the China hawks. And I also don't think that it's going to particularly impact UK policy in terms of uh, UK policy on China if you want to have a better idea of what um, Rishi Sunak is going to do in China I think you should listen to what the White House is saying not what Liz Truss is saying we tend to follow America pretty closely on that I think there's a theme to this week which is airtime and what the Conservatives are filling their airtime with and it's not really very much what the government is doing or what Rishi Sunak wants to talk about. It's, uh, you know, the National Conservatism Conference, the uh, the jamboree down in Bournemouth over the weekend, uh, trust going to Taiwan and so on. And uh, that's really interesting because they're not actually that far out from a general election. And I remember back in the day, uh, in the run-up to the 2015 election, I mean, you couldn't move for Tories talking robotically about the long-term economic plan. And you just don't have that message discipline or sort of unity of purpose uh, now. And I think that's partly because Rishi Sunak does have this sort of detached approach to politics. And also because 
unlike in 2015, they're all knackered and they've just spent far too much time with each other um, and are very cross with each other and are very keen to get their points of view out and they don't want to wait until after a, an election, uh, whether that's one that consigns them to opposition or to you know, five more boring years of government for them. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Katie. And thank you very much for listening.